as you're seated, children, you can be released for children's church. You know, being backstage and hearing those words sung, how great thou art, and just hearing the music fade, like, for me, there's power in those words, like, the reality of it. When I think of all the things that are kind of in front of me that have been swirling in my mind and my heart this week, and then just coming and lifting our eyes above all of that, to just sing of the greatness of God, like it, it's healing. It puts our lives in perspective. Like worship is a powerful, powerful means of God shaping our, our hearts and lives. So yeah, just as we enter God's word, it, it's just on my heart, like lifting up his greatness and, and holiness this morning. We're going to be this morning continuing in our study through the book of Philippians. So hopefully you have um, a scripture journal or your own Bible that you can uh, turn to. If you have one of the scripture journals, we're going to be on page 10, starting in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And <clears throat> Philippians is a book that was written by a man named Paul who once persecuted the church and then he helped plant churches. He himself became a follower of Christ. And at this point, he's sitting in prison in Rome, writing to a church that he helped plant in a town called Philippi. And so this is a letter written by Paul to the church there in this town. And, and I was reminded even this week of something that Karl Barth once poignantly said, where he said, there, would, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from problems in the church. Like most of, of the New Testament is letters written to the church that were having issues, that weren't quite getting it all right, who were having problems there. And even last week, what we saw in Philippians that Paul's writing, he says, hey, look, I want you to stand firm against the opponents who are outside the, the church. There are those within the culture, people, um, thoughts that are contrary to the gospel. And I want you to stand firm, to stand unified as a church against these things. But what we're going to hear today is it's not just things outside the church that we need to stand unified for. It's being unified for one another, together as a church, that there's unity in health inside, fighting for the unity in the church. And that this is what he's speaking about. Because in reality, sometimes the, the wounds that we have, the hardships that we've faced, haven't always come from the person outside the church. They kind of come from the people who are sitting beside us. The, the people who called themselves Christians who were inside the church. And there's wounds and scars we carry from those experiences of someone who wasn't outside, but inside. And now there's, there's deep wounds there. I was reading a story this week of a, a church in Dallas, Texas, and, and they were going through a, a bitter split, right? It's so bitter that it, it went public. And so it hit the news feed because they were splitting and there was two sides and they were trying to kick the other half out of the building, so they had a church building, so they're like, you guys leave, we're going to stay, and we get the building. And the other side was like, no, you guys got to leave, we get the building. And so going against scripture, they're like, well, let's take it to a judge in the court system and see. So the judge is hearing what all this is about, and they're like, yeah, no, I'm not touching this. This is like, 
take it to your denomination, right? And so the denomination heard the two sides, picked one side, you guys get to stay, and then the other side decided to go start another church down the road. Now, all of this was playing out in the news, and so one of these investigative journalists decided, like, hey, let's figure out how did all this start? Like, what deep theological issue could cause such a rift within the church? And, and what it turned out to be, one of the elders got a smaller piece of ham doing the potluck than the child sitting next to him. Now, think about that. Like... There's part of that that's humorous, and there's part of that that's like devastatingly sad. Like a church would split because there was such pride from an elder of like, he got a bigger piece of ham than I got. But I think if we're honest with one another, it hasn't always been the funny things that we have wounds from. Like there were jokes when I was growing up in a traditional church, like how do you move a piano in the church one inch at a time? right? Because churches often don't like change. We like our pews. We like our color carpet that we have. We we like things the way we want them. And if there's change, then something's wrong and bad. And like, there's all sorts of divisions that can separate us. And I wish it was a isolated incident, but I have a feeling if I asked you to raise your hand and I'm not like, Have you experienced church hurt? Has there ever been something in in the church that has happened to you that has left a scar, a wound? I think the reality is we would all say yes of some kind. We face that. And so what would God have to say to us? Knowing that pain that has happened, not from opponents outside the church, but from those inside the church, what would God have to say to us this morning? And this is what I want us to look at as we look at these 11 verses this morning. There's going to be three parts. In the first two verses, we're going to see that there is a unity that we have with one another in Jesus. This is what we're called to. But ultimately, there is a sickness that causes division in the body, a sickness of of self-ambition, a sickness of disease, of conceit. That's like a virus that seeks to cause division, but there is a cure that we see described and applied in the humility of Jesus. And so I want to pray for us this morning, and then we'll begin in verse one of chapter two. Lord, I thank you for your word that speaks to areas of deep brokenness in our life, Lord. That as much as we would love to say the church is perfect as you are perfect, we are not. And there are wounds and scars that that we carry with us because of not just opponents outside the church, but divisions inside. And so, Lord, would you speak? Would you bring healing and unity in, in our body, Lord? to walk in faithfulness and humility to your word and your leading. And in Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse one with me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, 
Well, we see these statements made if, look, if there's any of this. This isn't saying if is like, hey, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. There's this assurance of, hey, this is something that's there, but I want you to look in this area. I want you to measure. Do you find any of this in your heart, any of this in your life? Because the reality is it's also going to direct our attention because when we're wounded, where do we tend to look? We tend to look at the person who hurt us or we look at our own wounds. We say, do you see that person? They always act this way. They never greet me. They never call. They never care. And we start using these extremes and we begin to cast this straw man of of this totality of of even this one individual representing the entirety of the church and, and, and we focus outward on the pain. Or we focus on on our own wounds, our own hurts. And because of these experiences, we excuse isolating ourselves and separating ourselves from the body of Christ because we have to protect ourselves. And Paul focuses our attention from the beginning not on the person who has wounded us, or our own wounds, but by focusing our attention on Christ. Is there any? Is there any encouragement in Jesus? Like any? Like, think about this. Have you experienced any blessing of knowing Jesus? Have you experienced any blessing of being known by Jesus? Is there any encouragement whatsoever of of any kind? Let's, Let's begin there. Is there any comfort from love? Like, is there any sweetness of the love of God towards you in spite of all your faults and in spite of all your failures? Can you taste even the slightest hint of sweetness of God's love for you? Like a single granule of of sugar on your tongue, even that, is there any? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Like this participation is that same word we talked about in week one, um, koinonia, right? That this participation, this partnership, this fellowship of the spirit, is there any sense that the indwelling spirit is leading and guiding you? Any, any whatsoever. Look to God. Is there any affection, any affection for God, any affection for someone else? Can we start there with the smallest bit? However broken it may be, is is there any love? Is there any sympathy? Any kind of understanding for where another person might be? Not just your own story, not just your own hurt, but where somebody else might be also. Is there any of that? And this is where it begins. This is where Paul is, is challenging a church to not just stand firm against the opponents outside, but to fight for unity inside the church. Looking to Jesus, is there any encouragement, any comfort whatsoever? If so, be unified. He continues in verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the the same love, being of full accord and of one mind, complete my joy, Paul says. It's not that Paul was unhappy or like, hey, I'm not going to be happy. He was joyful in God, but he's like, complete that joy. 
Like, I'm happy when I see you walking in the truth. This is what it says in 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He has labored and proclaimed the gospel. And he's like, please complete my joy. Walk in this truth. If there's any encouragement in God, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any of that, can we walk in that, however small it may be? Can we walk in that, complete my joy, being of the same mind, the same love? This isn't the sameness where we all have to dress the same and we all have to talk the same. There is a uniqueness and diversity within the church, but what this is saying is that sameness is a unity of intent and purpose, that what we are moving toward and our unique gifts and personalities are moving in this common goal and intent to the glory of God. Can we share that and allow that to be more important than the lesser differences that the world seeks to define us by? Five times in the first chapter, Paul has talked about the gospel being that driving force. In verse 27 of chapter 1, he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Can we hold that as the most important thing? Can we look to to God and and not just at one another in faults and failures? Can, Can we say that this is what we hold up? This is what we're moving toward. This is the goal and intent of our life. Complete my joy. And that would be beautiful if that was our only reality, right? You're like, that's great. But that's not what happens. Right? There's real pains. There's been real wounds. But what's caused that? What what infects the church so often? Paul names here in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is what can creep into our hearts as pastors, as a church. This virus of selfish ambition. Like, how would you diagnose it? Right? Like, if this was a true illness and you have to go to a doctor and you're like, doctor, I think I might have selfish ambition. Right? Like, what would be the symptoms? I think when we come to church and we just think, what do I need? What do I want? Well, they're not really meeting my needs. They don't have this one thing that that I really want. We're placing ourselves above what God is doing. Why is that person leading such and such a ministry? Like, I would do such a better job. Like, I can't believe that they're doing this. Why aren't we doing such and such? We should be doing this. We should be doing that. Nobody says hi to me. Nobody greeted me. Why did that kid get a bigger piece of ham? Like there's a sense of when we place ourselves, our preferences, we see it all the time when it comes to worship styles. 
when it comes to you name it, parking, signs, what kind of coffee you serve. I've heard the craziest things, but it's different and I prefer something different. And quite honestly, we live in a culture that has a number of churches you can just find what you want for a time until they're missing something and then we just hop from one to the next, placing ourselves above what we're called to in scripture or conceit. Like, how would you diagnose conceit? Because there's the obvious thing of like bragging, right? I came across this quote this week from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said, I rejoice in myself. My consolations lie in my self-esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would have erected statues of me. I'm like, wow, he, he really thought a lot of himself. All right, like, we don't often have that kind of conceit in a church, right? Like, that, that is a little easier to identify. But what does it look like? Well, we're not really teachable. Because we know what we know, and so, like, you don't have anything to share with me. There's nothing new to learn. How about I just share with you what I know, and then we'll, we'll be good. Because I have it all figured out. There's a conceit there. We become critical of others. Like, I can't believe they did it that way. Why didn't they do it this way? It would have been so much better. There's a conceit that takes root. Love attention or praise. Like, yeah, I'll serve, but I want recognition for, for what I've done. And then we isolate ourselves from others. I've seen it happen with, with pastors and congregants. I've heard pastors say that they can't have accountability with another pastor because their church isn't as big as theirs. When if they don't have the same number of people, well then, they can't relate to me. Conceit. But I've seen it happen in partners as well. Sin comes to light, and it's like, let's walk in the gospel through this. No, I'd rather just go to another church where none of this is known. Let's do that instead. Selfish ambition and conceit can be a virus in a church. It, 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 the, the picture that comes to mind is when we were living overseas and I got malaria at one point. And along with like all the normal sickness and vomiting and like horrible feelings, there was this sense of like this balloon being blown up right between my joints. So it kind of felt like my, my joints were just being pulled apart. And, and there was this intense pain that coincided with everything else. This is what I think of when I think of selfish ambition and conceit inside the church. There's this sense that we are called to be a spiritual body made up of one body of many parts, unique, working together to glorify Christ, right? But what happens is when selfish ambition and conceit seep in, it gets into the wedges of those joints, those parts of connection, of relationship with one another, and it seeks to dislocate, to separate, to divide. And that's what we can see happen. And then it hits the news and some cheer, some grieve, and it becomes yet another painful story. But there's a cure that's mentioned here. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, full accord. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but 
Here it is in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the entrance of interest of others. The cure is humility. Now, this doesn't mean humility isn't just thinking less of ourselves. It's not like, oh, like I'm horrible. My opinion doesn't matter. Like my interest, like none of that. I don't have anything to offer. They were doing a better job. I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. That's not humility. That's just, again, a self-focus. Humility is ultimately thinking more of someone else than you think of yourself. Taking into account the interest of others more than, than yourself. Like the, there's the classic way of saying it. It's not, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. It's not who said hi to me, but who do I see here? Like who's sitting next to you that, that just needs a hug, needs a prayer, needs encouragement? Like it's, it's looking out to others, saying, where might I be an encouragement? It's not a, hey, I could have done that so much better. Maybe you could have. But it's saying, how can I come alongside this person to help them succeed and grow? It's not just looking for the exit after the service and how quickly you can make it to lunch before all the other churches lit out. It's saying, where might they need my help? Where can I serve? Where can I be used? Where can I be an encouragement? That's what it begins to look like as we lay down our own selfish ambition and pride to serve one another. But here's the reality. If we're honest, our hearts, my heart, selfish ambition and conceit are very natural. Kind of like breathing, right? Like, I know what I like. That's easy. I, you, I don't have to ask myself. I have my preferences. I have my interests. Gordon Fee once said, selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness, where self-interest and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others primarily dictate values and behavior. Like every one of us, very naturally, can put ourselves first. And so how then? How then do we walk in what the scripture is calling us to? How do we walk in this humility that we're called to, to think of others first, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves? That's not easy. And this is where it continues to look to Christ's example. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's a sense of adopt the attitude of Jesus. If you want to know how to step back from the self-ambition and the conceit, first look to Jesus. See who he is and what he's done. These next verses, 5 through 11, are central. It's, it's almost written like a poem that is central that all of Philippians is looking back to. Like I, I would encourage you, even throughout this series, memorize these verses. 
Let these verses resonate because if you've ever wondered, how do you share the gospel? How can you succinctly communicate the gospel through scripture? Memorize these verses because this is central to the entire book. And what I want us to see is it is this descending staircase of ideas, these four steps that, that, that we see Jesus taking that demonstrate what humility is. And it begins, and it says that we're to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In verse 6, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I want you to imagine you're looking at a staircase, and Jesus is standing at the top of the staircase. Now, who he is and what this is saying is it's like he's God. He's in the form of God. He's not trying to become God. It's not like if he's a really good person, then he will become God. No, he is God fully. He's not trying to grasp it. He's not trying to become something. He's not. He is completely God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word. He is eternal. Even when Jesus prays in John 17, he says that he was with the father I had with you before the world existed. Before this world ever was, Jesus was pre-existent, fully God. He wasn't trying to grasp that. He was. This is him. And then we see him take this step. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This word empties is this passage is often known in Greek as the kenosis, this emptying. But here's the question. What did Jesus empty himself of? Did Jesus empty himself of his divinity? Is that what it's saying? Because he said to, to, to be in the form of God was not something he grasped. So is that what he emptied himself of? No, not at all. Colossians tells us for in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He did not lay aside his divinity. So what then did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of the rights and privileges that came along with his divinity. Like, think of this. What rights and privileges does God have because he created everything? Right? He created the very people he came to serve who rejected him. He deserved their worship. He deserved for every knee to bow and every tongue confess. And if that has to be by force, then it could be by force. He is the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-present. He has the, the rights and privileges that go along with that. And instead, being fully God, he emptied himself of those rights and privileges to step in and serve But more than that, being born in the likeness of men, the eternal God clothed in humanity. See, Colossians tells us that it was Jesus who spoke those words in Genesis, let there be light, and there was light. In, in this all-present, all-powerful God, who existed before the world began, was born as an infant in a manger, unable to utter a single word. That's how he served. Now, think about this for a moment. Like, if you 
work outside or go to the gym and, and you get all sweaty, right? Your, your socks are sweaty, your underwear's sweaty, your clothes are sweaty, and you come inside and you get a shower. And then you put the sweaty clothes back on. Like, we just kind of get this like, that's nasty, right? God clothed in humanity. How do you even compare the two? Like, we get so used to it. We say it, and we're like, just like, God, being fully, it wasn't something to be grasped, became a servant, laying down rights and privileges while maintaining his divinity. Another step, took on human flesh, clothed himself in broken humanity, like us, and then became obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2, 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, God, became servant, taking on human flesh, becoming obedient even to death on the cross. He was perfect and without sin, yet because of our sin, he died. Your selfish ambitions, your conceit, your sin. It says Jesus became those for you. The one who wounded you, the one who abused, lied, Jesus became that sin. And it wasn't just the physical pain of the, the nails that pierced his hands and feet as he died on the cross, but the fact that the righteous anger of God against sin was poured out in the punishment that those sins deserve were poured out on Jesus, who was perfect, hadn't done anything, and yet he became the very brokenness. the very selfish ambition, the very conceit that we carry and entertain and have even suffered from. And so Jesus, fully God and fully man, became a servant to die. Now think back. I want you to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. You're like, eh. Acknowledge who you are your faults and your strengths, but lay down the rights and privileges you think that are owed you to serve others. Enter into the broken world of those who are hurting and live sacrificially for their good. That's the example we're called to. And this sounds great, but here's the problem. If all we take out of this this morning is okay, selfish ambition and conceit are bad. They're bad for the church, they're bad for us. So be humble, that's good. And that's all we take out of it, we've missed the point. Because let's be honest, we can't. Right? Like, can you do that on your own? Because I can't. I've tried before. And then I run out of steam and I'm like, no. Now I just don't like you because you're making me have to live this way. Like, 
It doesn't, like, it only goes so far. My, my, my love, my compassion has a finite boundary. So how am I to have the same attitude as Christ? Philipp, uh, Hebrews 11 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, here's what I want us to see, and this is how I want to close. We need more than Jesus' example. We need Jesus. See, here's what I want us to understand. It's not just we, we have selfish ambition and we have conceit or have I experienced that from others and we have wounds and so now I need to go and I just need to be more humble and, and be unified and forget about all of that. No, the call is so much greater. We don't just need the example of Jesus. We first need Jesus in the reality of who he is and what he has done. And so those selfish ambitions that we have, that conceit that we have, those wounds that have been done to us, those scars that we carry, we do the same thing with both. We lay them at the foot of the cross. We look to Jesus and think about where we began. Think about where verse one started us. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Now think about this. Going back to verse one, like to those who are discouraged, discouraged by their own sin, discouraged by the way they've experienced church, bring that to Christ who humbled himself, became a servant, took on humanity and died on the cross to pay for those wounds, to bring healing where there is brokenness. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Any whatsoever? To those who have experienced the the wounds and discomfort of brokenness where this has not been lived out perfectly, is there any comfort in the love of God? Is there any? Because that's where we're looking. We don't just need the example of Christ. We need the reality of his work applied to our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. That he was who he said he was. The pre-existent, divine, holy God who served and laid down his life to the point of death, dying on the cross for our sins, becoming our sin so that by faith we might become his righteousness. This is what we need. Is there any partnership in the Holy Spirit? Because that's what we need. We can't do this on our own. We can't figure it out. We can't just go and try harder. We need the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and encouragement to live according to Christ's example, not in our strength, but in his strength. Not because we can do it, but because Christ has already done it. And then he begins to cultivate in us affection and sympathy for one another. Where do we bring our hurts? Where do we bring our pain? And I pray that we see in these verses a journey that brings us full circle. Healing that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. As we humble ourselves before him first, and then walk in the path of humility that he has paved for us. Let's pray.